Hello and welcome to Coexisting. It's 2020 and due to the coronavirus making its way across the world, we find our towns and cities in lockdown in an effort to slow the pandemic. I'm Lara Lightbody, the producer of this show. Apart from the COVID headlines filling our screens, I was curious to hear how people were living day to day. So I asked the same eight questions to people in different countries to get a glimpse of their lives during their version of Shelter at Home. The questions I ask cover life right now as that person is living it. What day of shelter are you on? What are the rules in place? What is it like in the streets where you live? What practical advice has helped you at this time? What is your most memorable moment? And what would you say to someone who is feeling low today? It's part information, part human story archive, but mainly trying to get an uplifting bent on this insane situation we find ourselves in, and at the same time preserving these memories in audio. Memories that will, in a few short months, be forgotten. So, plug in those headphones or that speaker, grab a cup of tea or a glass of the good stuff and take a seat. This is Coexisting. Hi, my name is Mario Stefan. I am currently speaking to you from Dubai, where I've been living since 2012. And I'm what you would call a professional aid worker. That's been my life for the past 16 years. Today is March 3rd, 2021, and it's a kind of a sad anniversary for me because it's exactly one year today that I landed back in Dubai from the last flight I ever took. And I've been stuck, so to speak, or grounded, (laughs) pun intended, for the past uh, one year now. It's actually not as bad as it sounds because Dubai is a place that has managed the whole pandemic in an almost exemplary way. To date, we've only had three weeks of confinement back in April. We've been able to move. We've been able to have a social life. Uh, There are a lot of measures in place. There's a lot of restrictions in place. Nothing exceptional or weird. However, we've been very, very lucky to be in a place where we've been able to maintain a little bit of normality. Last but not least, we have been incredibly lucky to be in, I think, the second country in the world today when it comes to uh, the percentage of the population that's vaccinated. I was lucky enough to get my vaccine two months ago. Today, I think we're a bit over half of the population here that has been vaccinated. It's now a quarter past nine in the morning on the 3rd of March, 2021. I'm sitting in my home office in uh, Dubai. It is very calm. I can't hear a thing. And this is basically the little temple or little area of silence that I've built for myself to be able to manage work and a bit of sanity because... I have been very lucky to maybe have more freedom and more liberties than others on the planet today, but it yet doesn't make up for the fact that life as I knew it stopped quite brutally, I have to say. Before the pandemic, my travels amounted to 40% of my time. And today, well, it's basically a 0%. And with it comes a certain philosophy of life. 
comes with it a certain approach to uh, human relations, to how you keep in touch. And last but not least, in the line of my work comes the contact with the people we try to help and we try to serve on a daily basis. I live in an apartment on the 24th floor of a 28th floor uh, building. I have uh, quite a nice view. It makes for a good cup of coffee in the morning. Around me, when I look uh, from the window, I see um, amazing skyscrapers. I'm a very big fan of urban environments. And if you are, then Dubai is definitely a city for you. I can also see the sea from where I sit. So it's kind of... An ideal scenario, but uh, it's also very conducive to thinking about it all and reflecting as an aid worker on where you would want to be professionally, but also personally, and uh, what proximity can you have with loved ones. I haven't seen my family in uh, a year now. I'm lucky enough to have my wife and my son with me here in Dubai, so our little unit is close and we've been able to go through it together, which was wonderful. I'm a French citizen of Mediterranean descent. I was born in Syria and I grew up between Syria and Lebanon. And I moved to France when I was 16 years old. So my life has been a bit between <laughs> both sides of the Mediterranean, as I like to put it. And my family is currently in Lebanon. So not too far from where I am. It used to be a three hours plane ride from here and Dubai being the hub it is, we were able to jump on a plane pretty much like you take a bus. And so I never really reflected on the physical distance because it really wasn't an issue up until now. Back then, when the pandemic started unfolding, and I'm talking about January, February, we were looking at it from afar. It wasn't necessarily something we were concerning ourselves with, uh, waiting to see what would be really the extent of it. Uh, Dubai is a hub. It's a place with around 120 nationalities and the count always changes. And it's a hub also for business and it's a hub for tourism. And you have people coming in and out all the time, literally from the whole planet. So it was a bit on our minds. But then we live in a country where everything is very well organized. Everything is automated. You have an app for almost everything. Uh, you get your news by SMS, you get your news on your phone, it's up to date. And the confinement was basically the result of progressive measures that were being taken, you know, bit by bit, every week or every two weeks, starting from end of February 2020. But everything was done progressively and nothing was done in a threatening way to the point where we kind of all knew that the confinement was coming. And when it came, not only was everybody ready uh, mentally, but, you know, we had all packed, we had everything at bay. You had an app on which you could request a permit to go out in case of emergencies. Uh, your permit would reach you by SMS, which was a, a very simple and automated process. And sometimes within a few minutes, you would get the answer. This is a city where everybody complies. First of all, the fines are quite hefty. And I think there is a common feeling or a certain community feel which makes you want to contribute and support. 
Dubai, I think, today is the world capital for home deliveries. And with it comes an army of delivery people on their motorbikes. This is a city where you can literally order anything you want at any time of the day. Groceries, flowers, cakes, food, you name it. And and everything gets delivered to your doorstep. And when the confinement happened, it was made very clear that delivery people and deliveries were exempt from those measures to allow people to continue have, you know, some kind of of normality. Now, to my line of work, I was able to go out during the confinement. And it was crazy to see an empty city that is usually really bustling, but that had become the kingdom of those delivery drivers, because you would see them parked in places, reflecting. I don't think uh, many of them were actually able to take in everything that was going on, but all of a sudden, they were king of the streets. I thought that that was a very powerful image, you know, it was uh, in a way, I don't know, this is maybe my the leftist in me, but uh, the revenge of the working class, you know. Dubai is very glitzy, you have a lot of sport cars and all that, and all of a sudden the streets belong to delivery people. Now I'm I'm looking very fondly back at my days of flying, but <laughs> uh, back then, coming back from, you know, I think it was five or six plane rides since the beginning of the year, I was delighted to be stuck at home. So you didn't necessarily know what was coming, but you knew that you were able to rest for a certain amount of time, no matter what it was. On the personal front, work was another matter. I've been an aid worker for over 16 years, and out of it, I think half of it was spent in what we refer to as the field meaning I was close on our terrains of intervention, close to the people we were trying to support. I've worked throughout the years with different organizations, and I've been working on and off for a big medical organization with whom I arrived in Dubai back in 2012. When you you work for a medical organization and a pandemic hits, there is much more work that happens. This is not the first time we were dealing with a pandemic, but this was clearly the first time for us, like for everybody, where the whole world came to a halt. The last big outbreak, let's talk about outbreaks, I could think of that generated that level of mobilization was when Ebola did, you know, started ravaging Western and Central Africa back in 2014. But the main difference was that back then, most of the world was functioning. Uh, Borders were open. You were able to book planes. You were able to dispatch people. You were able to dispatch cargo more or less easily. So it did require a certain internal mobilization because Ebola back then was a very complicated disease to deal with and uh, required a lot of efforts at all levels. But it was, I wouldn't say life as normal, but we were able to work, we were able to uh, roll out our operations in what was a regular fashion back then. The main difference you have with the pandemic is that (laughs) all of a sudden all the borders are closed. You can't cross borders easily. And when you work all around the planet and when you see that COVID-19 virus is spreading in all countries, first of all, you're faced with basically three very basic dilemmas. One, you need to keep everybody safe. Two, you need to be able to treat patients who are suffering from COVID. And three, uh, which is very important, uh, you need to be able to continue your other activities because when you're in our line of work, uh, conflict doesn't stop because of 
Corona. Natural disasters don't stop because of Corona. People who live in situations of sanitary desert where you die because you just don't have access to healthcare, well, I mean, COVID didn't really change anything for them. You could still die from a fever. Every day was a different day. It reminded me of my time as an emergency responder in the field. There's not one day like the other. Uh, all you know is that there's very little sleeping. You have this rush of adrenaline that keeps you going. And I'm sure a lot of frontline workers and responders would recognize themselves in that. In past times, when I was deployed on emergency interventions, you knew you were there for three weeks or four weeks, and then you knew you could be able to count on a plane to whisk you out for you to recuperate, rest, and then come back in. The big difference was that this time you didn't know when that was coming. And as a matter of fact, it's been one year now that I've been waiting for it. I was very happy to talk to you on my one-year anniversary. I kind of tried to make it happen. I was hoping that the timing would, would coincide. So happy anniversary to me. Today, I think there's very few people on the planet, regardless of what status they have, regardless of what situation they're in, that can say, I've not been affected by COVID. There are some pockets here and there, but it's literally pockets. I think one year down the line, uh, over one year actually today, since you know the World Health Organization declared the COVID as a pandemic, Everybody has been affected. Now, the difference is when I'm living in a place like Dubai, if I happen to catch COVID and if I happen to have symptoms and if I happen to need uh, medical care, I can be rushed to a hospital in about 15 to 20 minutes. Uh, literally from where I sit, there are three hospitals next to me. And when I'm admitted in the hospital, the staff has enough protection equipment to be safe, to treat me and to take care of me safely without fearing contamination. And there is sufficient oxygen available whereby if I am having trouble breathing, uh, there's enough oxygen to keep me going and basically keep me alive. Now, those particular aspects are a luxury when you think of places like Yemen, when you think of places like Syria, try to get protective equipment, first of all, in. That's one big challenge. Try to find oxygen. In one of the places where we worked around the world, at one point, we were using around 8,000 liters of oxygen per day. And this is a conflict zone. This is not a place where you call a supplier and, you know, people come and deliver and all that. And you, you have to take care of all this. And you have to take care of all this in a situation where it's already complicated to move and all. So obviously we do what we can, but not everybody is lucky enough to get this treatment. And you've had people arriving, uh, you know, to our centers to be treated. They come in and they're conscious and three hours later they're dead. And that was actually the gruesome reality. Political decisions in many countries around the world where leaders deny the severity of the outbreak, and with it deny a whole level of prioritization of measures. They deny certain facilities that would result into better protection for everybody. Then the cases just increase and increase and increase, and some countries basically crumble. That's what we've seen around the world. We've seen places that were absolutely fine go completely underwater. And it's not necessarily the traditional terrains of intervention that you would think of. Our first big intervention when it started was in Europe, in northern Italy. Now, northern Italy is a place where, yes, there are a lot of 
elderly people in northern Italy, but you also have some of the best hospitals that the country has. And all that system collapsed and crumbled within three weeks. And it raised many questions as to what has been the investment in healthcare, what has been the public health approach of the country over the years, what is the pathway to health, or does everybody trickle down to hospitals that crumble under the sheer number, which is exactly what happened. When we found ourselves with a lot of people in, let's say, in Italy, all our Italian staff, that was basically blocked and could not travel. And some of them didn't want to travel. Some of them wanted to work in their own communities, wanted to support their families, their environment, their people. We managed to have, you know, resources on the ground that enabled us to respond directly. But to think of even a year ago, you would have told me uh, that some of my biggest interventions were in Europe or in Northern America, similar to experiences I've had on the African continent or uh, in Central Asia. It's just crazy. When you're down and you're working on it, you don't necessarily think about it all. And it's as time goes by and you start analyzing, reflecting, pondering on everything that happened professionally and also how it affects you personally, you don't come out intact. You really don't come out intact. And it's difficult to give the extent of it because, again, I was safely sheltered in a city that had not even half of those issues. Hospitals and the health sector rose up to it. And we even looked to see if our help would be needed at some point, And it wasn't at all uh, far from it. <laughs> it's not that I was myself a frontline worker, but you talk to your friends, you talk to your colleagues, and um, it's difficult to understand certain things. Anybody that has been involved in the direct response to COVID on the streets, feeding people who lost their jobs, who turned to food banks. If you look to undocumented migrants in the street with no protection, if you look at homeless people that were basically just left and forgotten because there was simply no no calculation or no consideration for them, at least in the beginning. And those are the populations we tried to support as much as we could in, in Northern America, in Europe. I'm lucky enough to work for a wonderful organization that focuses a lot on testimonies and focuses a lot on speaking out on behalf of the populations that we support and tries as much as possible to give them a voice for them to express themselves, which is sadly not always possible. What I am hoping to see is for us to write our story on the COVID because the testimonies we are able to give, the voice we are able to give to those who unfortunately are not with us anymore, what we were able to see in places that we call developed, it's the human experience that needs to be shared. There will be a lot of questioning for the years to come. I hope personally, that this will result into a different type of accountability towards the systems and the people who govern us. One can hope, but I think that we're going to need to pick up the pieces for quite some time. What aid agencies or international one like the one I work for today have faced has been a mix of solidarity, but also stiff competition. Because when you do not have protective equipment available, when you are fighting with different uh, governments, authorities, uh, privates who are trying to get hold of 
what exists. And you know that if you don't get it in on time, people will not be able to work and therefore people will die. Uh, you don't necessarily see the solidarity in moments like that. I think there was as much solidarity as we could fathom. I think there was for organizations with similar mandates trying to support each other logistically. Yes, there was a lot of solidarity. Dubai, if you look on the map, is literally in the middle of the world, contrary to what many people think about their own location. And um, we actually uh, operate here quite an important logistics hub to pull in efforts with other agencies to charter flights, to be able to negotiate exceptional access, to negotiate opening of airspace, to negotiate landing rights, to have the possibility of getting what is being blocked temporarily for people. Yes, you have had solidarity for that. But I've also been tasked at one point in trying to find, you know, surgical masks. And you're racing against literally individuals who would land, go to a factory, buy everything cash in hand at three, four times the price. Uh, greed starts appearing. You're not sure of the quality that you're able to buy. You are trying to secure equipment. You're trying to do your quality control. People are trying to play you. Prices are rising. At one point, I remember finding masks whose cost was 30 times the price of what you usually pay. Now, we didn't go for this. I don't know if it's a survival instinct, but a reaction that is an almost fight for resources that is counterproductive. I've got mixed, <laughs> mixed feelings about that period. What I think is really sad today is that you have to state that you are pro-science and that you are pro-vaccine. Working for a medical organizations and seeing you know, firsthand <laughs> unvaccinated populations and, and what happens to them, it's sometimes a bit difficult to see, especially coming from countries that try to present itself as developed as populations that are educated and all. It's sometimes very hard to hear a lot of what we heard. You do not live in your own bubble today. We are all interconnected. Choices you make individually have an effect on the rest of the world, have an effect on the wider community that you serve. And it's just incredible that we have to state those matters today in the 21st century. I've been stuck in one place for a year now and uh, granted a very relaxing, comfortable, easy, fun place. And I say that not to try to compare with others because each one of us have their own reality, but I really can't say that the environment I've been in for the past year has been challenging. It all happened inside my head, basically. There was for me some kind of eureka moment of, you know, being able to take some time to pause and reflect and realizing how much I missed my old life, how much I missed my travel life, how much I missed what came with it in terms of interaction, in terms of human contact, what came with it in terms of routine. And really things you don't think about, you only think about them as means to an end. But actually, when you add them all up, you realize how much a particular way of living your life makes sense. I never really thought of borders. I never really thought of being in Dubai as being in a place far away from my friends in the States or my friends in Europe. I never felt that distance. And today to be stuck in one place, I thought was kind of a eureka moment that made me reconsider a lot of things. 
when it's going to happen again, because I don't think, unfortunately, it's a matter of if, but it's more a matter of when, where do I want to be confined? And where do I want to be stuck? And if there's one message or one thing I would like to share with others is I would invite people to ask themselves one question. is like, when it's going to happen again, where do you want to be stuck? And I think that out of a question like this, this is going to help you redefine a lot of things, whether your uh, relations with your environment, with your family, with your loved ones, whether your line of work. And yes, I stay realistic in terms of what change I can really affect. But one of the things that I've decided is to physically move and be in a different place because one of the answers that I came up with is if I'm going to be confined uh, next time around, it's no criticism of, again, how wonderfully lucky we have been in Dubai. But at a personal level, I know that I will want to be stuck, you know, closer to some people, closer to a different reality than the one I'm in. So people start projecting yourself in the future. It might help you recalibrate quite a lot of things. I would have basically just one message, which is a bit of a odd message, but I do believe that it helps. Keep on fighting. I can't believe that in the 21st century, I have to state that I am pro-science, but I actually have to. And a lot of us have to. It's not easy these days, but keep on fighting and have that state of mind because it's with that state of mind that you're going to be able to you know, muscle all the strength you need to go through it. Keep on fighting conspiracy theories. Keep on fighting lack of rationality. Keep on fighting anti-science. And I think that this fight today is necessary more than ever. And as crazy as it may sound, it has a therapeutic effect. Thank you for listening to Coexisting. It's Lara Lightbody, the producer of the show. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear the story unfold, here is where I need your help. Hit the subscribe button so Coexisting comes up automatically in your feed. Secondly, write a review and rate with stars, especially if you listen on Apple Podcasts. And if there's anyone out there that you think would make a great guest, just get in touch. I'm on Instagram, Facebook or LinkedIn as Coexisting Podcast. That way, that many more people will find us.